Good morning, church. It's good to see each one of you here today. How many times have you ever looked at something from far away and found it to appear one way, even pleasant, but as you approached it, you realized that something was wildly amiss? A mansion that appeared to be beautiful from a distance turned out to be dilapidated and rotting upon closer inspection. Years of attention to outward showiness and years of neglect of foundational structural issues have rendered the house unfit for residence. There's a home renovation show that we have often found ourselves watching uh, time and again. That The premise of the show is that the house flippers specialize in purchasing severely blighted properties that they can buy for bargain basement prices. Once they purchase the homes, sometimes sight unseen, they go in and gut the home to the studs. Because in their experience, even most blighted homes are usually still structurally sound. Most often the problem lies with the cosmetic issues. Much of the time this is successful and they turn a trap house that they bought for $5,000 into a very nice livable home that they sell for a very handsome profit even after renovation costs are accounted for. Every so often, though, something goes awry. A home that they had hoped to be able to restore turns out to be so unsalvageable that the only thing to be done is to raise the building to the ground and start with a new foundation. Studs are rotted out, foundations are crumbled, years of neglect and superficial fixes have resulted in a home in which it's dangerous to even be standing. Walking through these homes is nothing short of a modern miracle that a light breeze hasn't blown the house over. Years and alternating layers of paint and mold are the only thing separating the inside from the outside. Floors creak and buckle, sometimes resulting in one of the hosts stepping through a hole in the floor. The rot is pervasive. It cannot be salvaged. It must be destroyed. So that's what happens. The flippers call in their team and the home is leveled. A new foundation is dug. Higher quality materials are used. The right materials are used. Wires, pipes, and ducts are run to code. And in the end, the cost is always higher than just renovating what was there. But had they not engaged in creative destruction, the home would have been in the same shape as before the renovation, fancy flashing on a rotting corpse, posing a danger to all who come near it, possibly even fatal. This brings us to today's text. But prior to this, there's a bit of groundwork that needs to be laid. There's a lot going on in this text. This was... This was one that as I was preparing for today's sermon, trying to distill down today's text to the big thing was probably one of the hardest things because there's so much going on. The first thing that needs to be stated is that while Scripture does not contradict itself, we believe that Scripture is harmonious. There are times when one gospel includes events that are not described in others. 
Sometimes they describe the same events from different perspectives, including different details, depending on what the author is attempting to communicate. Very frequently, we find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke will describe the same events. John often describes different events. An event, however, that shows up in all the Gospels is a temple cleansing. Matthew and Mark go into significant detail. Luke pretty much mentions it in passing. John also mentions a temple cleansing in some detail. There is, however, a major difference between the account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the account in John. They're not the same cleansing. John's describing a temple cleansing that happens right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Mark describes the second cleansing that happens right at the end, just a few days before he's crucified. Upon reading the text, there's really no way to reconcile the two as one event. John's account, the first cleansing, occurs about a week following John the Baptist's great proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Mark's account, the second cleansing occurs during Passion Week, slightly less than a week prior to Jesus' crucifixion. This might seem like a minor detail. So what? There's two temple cleansings. There could not be anything more significant. Think of parenting. When a child is being disobedient, you correct them. How do you do it, though? Is it harsh? Or should it be more grace-filled and corrective, teaching the child right from wrong? What if later the child does the same thing after being corrected and being shown what's right? In today's text, Jesus has already cleansed the temple once. Now, for the same reasons, he must cleanse it again. And this time, there's a harsher tone. In John's account, John the Baptist had just been confronted by priests why he was baptizing if he was neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Jesus walked toward him and John made his great proclamation of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, so, John also made this statement. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. After this, Jesus called some of his disciples and performed his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. According to that text, it wasn't public and it remained a secret except for his disciples who were there. All of this occurred within the span of one week. Remember this, it'll be important momentarily. Then we see in, later in John 2 that Jesus entered the temple for his first cleansing as a kickoff to his public ministry. He entered, looked around, observed the degradation and the iniquity occurring, and he drove it out, declaring, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In response to this, the Jews questioned his authority, and Jesus declared, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And their indignance, John tells us, they didn't understand that he was speaking of his own body as the temple on which the Spirit had descended and remained. 
In fact, this claim would be referenced in Mark when the Pharisees accused Jesus at his trial before the Sanhedrin. Where it's recorded in Mark that he made the claim that he would tear it down and raise it back up in three days. And yet Mark doesn't record that initial statement. That statement comes to us from John. Corruption had been found in Israel, and the Messiah had come to drive it out. To more fully understand why this first cleansing matters, we also have to look at the Mosaic Law, specifically in Leviticus 14. In this part of the law, God told Moses in great detail the procedure for cleansing the house in which there was disease. The disease described in Leviticus was a leprous disease. In modern days, we tend to think of Hansen's disease or leprosy. But the word here is a more general, any type of disease or corruption that's in this house. Something that threatened the health of community and a very specific procedure was given. First, it had to be noticed that there was even corruption to begin with. Second, once their corruption was noticed, the owner of the house had the responsibility for inspecting the home. Third, once the owner had performed his inspection of the home, he was responsible for notifying the priest that there seems to be a case of corruption in my house, who was to then come and examine the home after everything had been removed. Fourth, if disease was found that was deeper than just the surface, the priest was to shut up the house for seven days. And fifth, the priest was to re-examine the house after seven days. If disease was still found in the house, all the corrupted stones and the plaster was to be removed and taken outside the city and new stones and new plaster put in its place. However, If at a later time, corruption was found in the same house again, the priest was to declare that the corruption was persistent and the house was fit only to be raised to the ground and the stones and the plaster carried out of the city and no one could live there. It was unfit for anything. What's described to us in John at the beginning are the first several steps of a cleansing process. Corruption had indeed been found in the land, and the master of the house had seen it. Jesus had declared that his body was the new temple, just as John had declared that the Spirit would remain on him. Seven days after John's declaration, Jesus goes to the heart of the people, the temple. What he finds sickens him. Corruption had overtaken the temple. So what did Jesus do? He purged the temple of what had overtaken it. After this, he began his ministry of healing, teaching, and casting out demons, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In last week's text, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem on a colt the foal of a donkey, and a most unmistakable royal sign that he alone is worthy to sit on the throne of David. And what does he do immediately upon his entry into Jerusalem? 
he went straight to the temple to take a look around. But this wasn't just a casual look at, his, at the scenery, wondering what the people are doing. This was a priestly reinspection to see if corruption had indeed returned to his house. Let's turn now to our text. Our text today is Mark 11, 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who had sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Up until this point in Mark, we have seen again and again what has been called the messianic secret. The text of Mark makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. That he has the authority that he is the Son of Man. He speaks in ways that only God can speak. He teaches with an authority that only God can claim. He performs deeds that only God can do. Yet repeatedly we see Jesus tell those for whom he has performed miracles to not tell anyone. Last week, however, the tone changed. If it was a secret up until now, after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, the cat was out of the bag. The Messiah, the son of David, was here. 
Only the king could enter Jerusalem in that manner. Jesus had their undivided attention and even their desire as they proclaimed, Hosanna, the son of David. Now, to show them what was required. As we see here, if they thought that they were ready for their Messiah, they were about to learn that they were very, very unready for their Messiah and what he requires. So what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about the Messiah? The first thing that we learn about the Messiah is that Jesus zealously cares that his people bear good fruit. The episode with the fig tree has often troubled New Testament scholars. In this passage, we see the one and only time in the Gospels in which Jesus uses his power to destroy. We've seen Jesus walk on water, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, cast out demons, and even raise the dead. We've never seen him use his power to destroy. Why would Jesus destroy? One commentator called this behavior the seeming height of pettiness. Destroying the fig tree because he was hungry and he didn't get food. Is that really what's happening here? On the contrary, the first episode with the fig tree should not be understood as Jesus being mistaken about the fig tree and responding with petty rage. But rather, Jesus using the fig tree as a living parable. He was about to teach his disciples something. Something profound. He approached the fig tree not as one who actually expected to find fruit, but as one who had the right to expect fruit, given the foliage on the tree. A healthy tree should, after all, as we're told in Genesis, bear fruit after its kind. To set the stage, we need to back up to verse 11. In verse 11, we're told that Jesus entered, Jer and went, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. After his triumphal entry, Jesus went straight for the heart of Israel to see what was there. If you want to know about a people, you go to their most sacred place. He went straight to the temple and looked around, and he saw everything. We're told that he didn't stay long because it was late, but he had seen things. The next morning, we're told, Jesus was hungry. This hunger is what prompted Jesus, disciples in tow once again, to approach the fig tree to see if there was anything on it for food. We're told that the fig tree was in leaf. So what? The tree had leaves. Why does this matter? For those of us who may not be so informed on the details of arboriculture, the thing about trees, about fig trees, is that their early season fruit starts at the end of the previous growing season, and it remains there all winter. The leaves on the tree are the sign that those early fruit can be eaten. Now, the early season fruit wasn't particularly sweet or palatable, but it was good for sating the hungry of a weary traveler. 
leaves communicated that there was fruit available for the eating. Or at least there should have been. When Jesus approached the tree, he found there was nothing because it wasn't the season for figs. Why would there be figs there? It wasn't the season. The leaves, however, said there should have been. This contradiction between the expectation and the reality prompts Jesus' response. His curse, really. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The extremity of this response is what has prompted the concern of several commentators, and even those who aren't Christians. In fact, Bertrand Russell, the famed philosopher and atheist, has specifically cited this episode with Jesus and the fig tree in his book, Why, am I, Why I Am an Atheist. He described it as the petty vindiction of a child that didn't get what it wanted. He didn't find what he wanted, so he just destroyed the tree in a fit of anger. Or is it something else? We're not told that Jesus was angry. In fact, nowhere in the text is he, is he described as angry or enraged. I would submit that it was this. The tree was full of leaves and appeared as if it should have figs. There should have been something there for the weary traveler. It didn't because it was out of season for figs, but the point is the deception. The tree was behaving as if it should, have, should be bearing fruit, but it was not. As we know from the text here and moving forward, this is Passion Week. Passover was coming. Based on the Jewish calendar, Passover would always fall in late March or April. This was not the season for figs, and Jesus would certainly know this. But it looked like it should be good for something ready to perform its duty of providing food, except that it wasn't. The tree was doing something against its natural design. It was sending a message that was patently untrue, deceiving all who would come to it for rest. What good is a tree that doesn't behave as it should? A tree that promises fruit to the hungry but yields nothing that promises food but leaves you wanting, that promises sustenance and life but gives only starvation and death. By cursing the fig tree, Jesus was stating the obvious already. The truth is, it was a dead tree no matter how full its leaves were. Like Adam and Eve after the fall, this tree, though in leaf, was useful only to cover nakedness, not to sustain life. We learn here that Jesus cares zealously what kind of fruit a tree bears. People were coming from all over. They should have been able to find life and nourishment in this tree. Instead, they found only a fruitless, diseased, useless tree. And make no mistake, a leafy tree that is not bearing fruit after its kind has something seriously wrong with it. What do we as Christians make of this? Is there a warning here for us? The life of the Christian should bear the expected fruit. We're told this throughout Scripture. The life of the Christian should have substance. Rather than a lot of whiz-bang, flash, and show, when people come to a Christian, they should find substance. When our Lord looks at us, he should see a tool fit for use, a tree bearing fruit. 
The cursing of the fig tree is an episode that's recorded only in Matthew and Mark. However, upon this same approach to Jerusalem, Luke records a detail that I believe could help us un- more clearly understand what is happening in Mark. In Luke's account, as Jesus and the disciples are approaching Jerusalem, they pause and Jesus begins to weep over the city, saying these words, Would that you, even you, had you known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Remember at the beginning, we discussed that the pattern of Jesus' temple cleansings follows the pattern of a priestly inspection of a diseased home. The word used in Luke to describe the visit to the temple is visitation. That's more accurately an oversight or an inspection. This isn't just a stopping by, hey, how are you doing? How are the family? How are the kids? No, this was looking to see what was going on. Were were things as they should be. What was implied by the living parable with the fig tree in Mark is explicitly stated in Luke. They, the people were inspected and they were found to be quite diseased. From far away, the temple appeared to be busy and bustling in activity engaged in temple business. It was coming up on the Passover, by the way, the the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Celebrating their deliverance, it was busy. Up close, nothing was as it was supposed to be. Something was quite rotten. Jesus came to the temple to inspect it as a priest would inspect a home. Despite three years of preaching, teaching, and casting out demons, Israel still did not recognize her Messiah, and they continued with business as usual. Except that the business as usual was not what it should be. A tree in full leaf at Passover is making a promise it cannot fulfill. So too was Israel. Just as Micah, speaking for God, described his disappointed search for the first ripe fig my soul desires, so Jesus, in his initial visit to the temple, found Israel all leaves but no fruit. Israel had the benefit of everything God had to offer. It had the law preserved for them by Moses. They had the priesthood enabling them to have communion with God. They had the sacrifices offering forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. They had the prophets communicating to them the very word of the living God. They had the temple. They had been oppressed by the nations, yet God had preserved them. Israel should have been a light to the people. In Genesis 22, God declared to Abraham about his descendants, your offspring shall be, through in your offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. From its inception, Israel was to be a blessing to the world. Yet, 
upon Jesus' inspection of the temple the previous day, it was found to be anything but a blessing. Three years after Jesus had cleansed the temple, the first time the temple was found to be diseased once again. Like the fig tree, the temple appeared to be performing its duty. It was busy. People were coming to offer sacrifices. But upon closer inspection, it was found to be infested with sin. It was found to be persistently corrupt and fit only for destruction. Jesus' patience with Israel was long-suffering, but it was not unending. After three years of rejection, the corruption was back in the house, and the only thing left was for Jesus, the great high priest, to declare it fit only to be raised to the ground. The second thing we learn about the Messiah in this text is that Jesus stands zealously opposed to those who use the worship of God to enrich themselves. After Jesus had declared the temple unfit for anything but destruction in his parable of the fig tree, he proceeded to purge the temple of wickedness. We're told that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and proceeded to shut down the business of the temple for the day. He wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple and he remained there until the end of the day. In verse 11, we're told that he looked around the temple. When, he looked, when Jesus looks around, he sees all. Keep in mind, he had just been in the temple the previous day. What he saw would not have been anything different. Hence, Jesus' use of the fig tree to set up the actions of today. However, we the reader are not told what he saw until verse 15. So what? There were money changers and people selling sacrifices. Why was this a problem? We, to understand the problem, we must understand the business of the temple. Every year during the Passover, every adult male Israelite was required to pay the temple tax. In Exodus 30, the Lord decreed that everyone numbered in the census was to pay one half of a shekel in the temple currency as a ransom for their lives. No one was to pay more. No one was to pay less. Everyone was the same before the Lord. Jews came from all over the empire to the temple to be counted. But what if you didn't have the temple currency? You had to exchange it for the temple currency. Now Israel had laws of charging interest and making profit in that manner. Going so far as to call lending at interest and taking a, taking a profit an abomination. In Ezekiel, the prophet declares, Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Yet despite these absolute and dire prohibitions, the money changers would charge a fee and use dishonest scales in making the exchange, enriching themselves off the backs of the pilgrims. Merchants would also have pre-approved sacrifices for purchase by the pilgrims. This served as a convenience to the traveler. You wouldn't want to risk traveling many days and many miles only for your sacrifice that you brought with you to be declared unclean. Instead, 
travelers could purchase sacrifices that had already been declared clean by the priests. Why would this be problematic? It was problematic because the merchants would pay the priests for their spot in the court of the Gentiles. And if they paid a little bit more, the priests would look the other way and declare blemished sacrifices unclean. Because for a little bit of money, we can grease the skids and really get a good business going. Now, Jesus entered the court of the Gentiles. This would have been the furthest that the nations would have been allowed to enter the temple. By design, the temple was to be a temple for all the nations to worship the true and living God. It was always understood that people would come from all peoples and tribes and nations to worship. It's here that Jesus would have entered on this day. Coins were required to be in, in shekels. The money changers would often give unfavorable rates, lining their own pockets. The pigeons were such that were ceremonially approved for sacrifices. They were options for the poor and those with few means. The temple, a place of worship, had become a place of self-enrichment. People going through the motions, for sure, they're going to the temple, they're offering their sacrifices. But the temple inside was not what it appeared to be on the outside. What was Jesus' response? He overturned the tables and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. He didn't just walk in, do his thing, and walk out. He remained and shut down the business for the, of the temple. The temple that was unclean could not function. He would not allow it to function. Stop this, but yeah. So stop the seller, sure. They're the ones enriching themselves off the back of the travelers and the poor. But stop the buyers? Why the buyers? Because the buyers were just as guilty. Jews were required to give of their best. They're unblemished. They're perfect. But instead of cultivating perfection to offer God, they became complacent and outsourced their responsibility to corrupt businessmen. Instead, they decided to go to the temple, toss a little silver for a corrupt sacrifice, and go their merry way. The sellers were not the only corruption in the temple. The text places great emphasis on Jesus' cleansing of the temple. You know, in, in the Greek, there's a structure present that emphasizes this. This should draw our attention. By emphasizing the cleansing of the temple, Mark is telling us that there is something more here for us than just Jesus cleansing the temple. But what is it? We have record in the Old Testament of two previous temple cleansings. This is not the first time that the temple has been purged of evil. The first cleansing we have a record of is in 2 Chronicles 29. When Hezekiah became king, he went to the, the temple and reopened it after years of neglect and desecration. He ordered the idols removed and the altars torn down. He restored the priesthood and ordered the temple to be consecrated, consecrated to the worship of the one true God of Israel. The second cleansing that we have is in 2 Chronicles 34 just a couple generations after Hezekiah. The scroll of the law had been found in the temple after years of neglect and brought to King Josiah. 
When Josiah heard the words of the law, he wept and walked into the temple, read the words to the people, then proceeded to cleanse the temple. He deposed the priests who led the people astray and ordered the altars to Baal and Asherah to be torn down. The idols were removed. Josiah restored the priesthood and the observance of the Passover. What we also learn is that God's anger toward Judah wasn't calmed just because the temple had been cleansed. But because of Josiah's zeal, the Lord promised him that he would not see judgment in his day. However, the text tells us that judgment would come. Now, interestingly enough, we even have a record of a third temple cleansing in, one, in an extra-biblical source. Here I want to emphasize that we don't believe that this writing is scripture. We don't believe it's inspired. But we do believe that it is a reasonable historical portrayal of what happened. In the intertestamental period, when Judea was under Greek oppression, the king at that time, Antiochus Epiphanes, had been defeated by battle or defeated in battle by the Jews under the leadership of Jewish, Judas Maccabeus. Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple by building an altar to Zeus and sacrificing a pig in the temple. And in, in an act of intentional defiance and desecration. Upon defeating Antiochus, Judas Maccabeus entered the temple, tore down the altars, removed the idols, Upon purging the temple, he restored the priesthood and consecrated the temple to the worship of God. That's it. We have three, three records of temple cleansings. Why are these important? It's this. Only the king cleanses the temple. The priests may consecrate the temple, but the king purges the evil from it. And only the king passes judgment. Jesus, the rightful Davidic king, had entered his temple and found it desecrated, and the only thing left to do was to purge it and shut it down. Jesus stands zealously opposed to those who use the worship of God to enrich themselves. The third thing we learn about the Messiah in this text is that Jesus zealously cares about the true worship of God among the nations. Jesus' actions here didn't just end with purging the temple of evil. It continued with a condemnation. Jesus had completely shut down the business of the temple. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through it. Jesus had priests had inspected the temple and declared it corrupt. Jesus as king shut down the business of the temple due to the corruption. Now Jesus as prophet taught and declared the word of the Lord in the temple. Jesus opened his teaching in the temple with God's declared purpose for it. Quoting Isaiah 56. Now Isaiah 56 opens with a command to keep justice and do righteousness because soon my salvation will come. The Lord then pronounced blessings on all those who keep the Sabbath. But these are not just general blessings. These are blessings pronounced to foreigners. Gentiles who, as Isaiah said, join themselves to the Lord. At the end of the passage, the Lord declares, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, 
These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here's the part that Jesus quotes. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. God declared his temple would be a temple for all peoples and nations and the covenant made with Israel would be open to all people who join themselves to the Lord. Israel would be a light to the nations and they would come to God's holy mountain and worship him. The Lord declared the purpose of his house. But then Jesus goes on to quote by way of contrast Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord's pronouncing judgment on his people because of the great evil they have committed. They've worshipped false gods in the temple. And this is where he quotes Jeremiah 7:11. You have made it a den of robbers. To the hearer, this would or should have called to memory the remainder of Jeremiah 7. When God condemned Judah in Jeremiah 7:11 by saying, you've made it a den of robbers, he then challenged them in verse 12. If you don't believe me, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. I've done it before. Don't think I won't do it again. And if you need proof, go look at Shiloh. Sometime between 1 Samuel 4 and Psalm 78, the Philistines had overrun Shiloh as God's judgment because, as we're told, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. Like Mark's description of Jesus' behavior in the temple, his record of Jesus' teaching is emphasized. That my house, this house, my house, a house of prayer it'll be called. You have made it a den of robbers. Later in Jeremiah, the Lord recalls what he did at Shiloh. He states, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I've set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you've not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations. This people, this city, this temple that was to be a blessing to the nations, if they abandon if they walked away, if they did not follow. God says he will make it a curse. So in Jesus' teaching in the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's reminding them, if you think that I will allow you to walk into my house committing your abominations, you had better think again. Remember what the Lord did at Shiloh. The judgment of the Lord may be slow, but it does not sleep forever. God expects his temple to be holy. He expects it to be a light and a blessing to the nations. He will not tolerate an abomination. 
he will not tolerate corruption, and he would rather his temple be laid desolate than for it to be defiled. His temple will not if his temple will not be used for the true worship among, among the nations, then it will be used for nothing. Jesus zealously cares about the true worship of God among the nations. And upon inspection, the temple was found wanting. After Jesus shut down the business of the temple for the day, his divine visitation complete, he left. But he didn't leave for good. The very next day, Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem. But before they entered Jerusalem, they came upon that fig tree, or what was left of it. The tree, we're told, was withered from the roots up, indicating that it, the tree was completely and undeniably dead. It was not coming back. No one would ever eat figs from that tree again. The disciples in the background thus far now come to the foreground with Peter remembering about the tree and remarking on it. Basically telling Jesus, hey, there's the fig tree, but now look what's happened to it. And yet, something that we should notice in the text, Jesus offers absolutely no explanation of the fig tree. And to be perfectly honest, the disciples don't ask for one. The tree was worthless, the tree was destroyed, the tree was dead, and it's just accepted. Jesus responds, however, with three commands. Have faith, pray, and forgive. A seeming non sequitur in the text. Here we come to the fig tree. It's not doing what it should do. The tree's cursed. We go into the temple. The temple's not doing what it should do. The temple is cursed. Here's the fig tree again. Oh, yeah, it's dead. It's not coming back. Well... Have faith, pray, and forgive. All right. This serves as a stark, instructive contrast to what Jesus observed in the temple the day before. In this contrast, we learn what a life of true worship should look like. First, we learn that a life of Tur worship? True worship expresses its faith in God, even when faith seems humanly impossible. Jesus uses the extremity of faith moving mountains. This sounds extreme, and it would have been even more so to Jesus' disciples. Remember what the writer of Hebrews tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is not blind hope or wishful thinking. It is the absolute and unwavering confidence in the promises of God. God is long-suffering, not slow. He has not forgotten his promises to Israel. If he said he will do it, then he will surely do it. 
so much so that with faith to that degree, mountains can be thrown into the sea. Mountains were seen as sacred places. Many important things in Israel's history had occurred on mountains. The law was given on a mountain. The prophets were hidden in the mountains. Then, in Isaiah, we have the holy mountain of God. The roots of the mountains were believed to stretch to the very foundation of the earth. Rabbis spoke of uprooting mountains and moving them closer so that they knock and grind, but Jesus speaks of such complete removal that the mountain disappears in the depths of the sea. Moving a mountain involved upending the creative order, but not just any mountain, this mountain, the Temple Mount. That is an extreme faith indeed. A life of worship expresses faith in God, even when that faith seems impossible. We also learn that a life of, well, there's that typo again, a life of true worship expresses its dependence on God through prayer. When we approach God humbly, with godly motives according to his will, we can have absolute confidence that God will grant our prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right prayer does not involve us asking for anything we want willy-nilly. It involves us asking that God bring his will to pass. Later in Mark, in chapter 14, when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, he prays, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's what prayer is supposed to look like. Prayer that honors God is prayer that submits to his will. True worship expresses dependence on God through prayer. We also learn that a life of true worship demonstrates the work of God through forgiveness. When praying, Rather than praying for vindication and retribution against the one who wronged us, we're told to go to them with forgiveness. Why? <laughs> Why? So often throughout Scripture, we see prayers for vindication. We see prayers that the Lord would bring his judgment. Why are we told to pray and to offer forgiveness? Well, we're told in the text, so that we might be forgiven by God. Why should God forgive us when we have violated his law if we will not also forgive others when they wrong us? A life of true worship is not hypocritical. We are forgiven, therefore we forgive others. Full stop. Of course, this isn't a new teaching. 
Way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 5, Matthew records this. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you. However, this has the most emphasis of any of Jesus' commands in this section. Forgiveness. Our forgiveness of others implicates God's forgiveness of us. A life of true worship of God is characterized by forgiveness. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Now, as we move forward from this text, Jesus' interactions take on a much more confrontational tone. His cursing of the fig tree and its destruction is the last miraculous act that we see by Jesus. That's it. The last one was a destructive act. We see confrontation moving forward. He responds to the leaders about taxes, the resurrection, the law, and the Christ. He warns against the Jewish leaders. And then, of course, we have the Olivet Discourse coming up in chapter 13 and the end times. The crowds who had welcomed him and hailed him as king by the end of the week will be clamoring for his death. Following Jesus demands much. True worship demands much. And these things matter to Jesus. False worship has dire consequences as we saw in today's text. True worship characterized by faith, prayer, and forgiveness are what is required. And these Jesus greatly honors. When the Messiah comes to visit, what will he find in us? Let us pray. Father, today we've, we've been confronted by one of the more difficult texts that we've, that we've read thus far in Mark, and there have been a lot of them. We're confronted with having to reconcile judgment and a curse from someone that thus far in the text from your son that we've seen healings and miracles and teaching. but it's a condemnation of false worship of a people that didn't get it. And yet, Father, we're often not that different. And Father, as we continue to mull over and search this text, Father, I pray that, that we would be a people of faith and a people of prayer and a people who stand ready to forgive that we would offer ourselves as true worship to you, the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.